Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, urban planner and dungeon master Aaron Goldbeck and I sit down to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, urban planning, and late-stage capitalism. Fair warning, in the very nerdy run of this show so far, this is hands down our nerdiest episode. Enjoy! I think you, like me, have been doing this tabletop thing for a long time. Yeah, I think I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons specifically. I started playing Dungeons & Dragons at a YMCA aftercare uh, thing in Chicago when I was like nine mm-hmm. or ten, mm-hmm. and I've just not ever stopped. I had some ins and outs, but I think one of one of the things that never happened for me um, is I never found myself GMing. And I think part of that was because I was never, like, as a kid, I wasn't super organized. I didn't do a good job of, like, putting stuff together in a way that was coherent. I was not a great leader of nerds. Um, <laughs> I'm really good at being a nerd, and I would never say that I'm a great leader of men. Um, but I was, I was definitely not even a good, a great leader of nerds. Leading nerds is difficult, as we've learned recently. It's, it's a lot like herding cats. Yeah, well, it's it's herding cats that are really into everything. Like yeah. it's like herding cats is one thing. At least you can distract them with something else. But when a nerd gets their hooks into a thing, it's just they're never gonna let go. Yep. So what? took you from player to gm one was you're like no 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 y'all don't know what you're doing i'm gonna do this now oh that's an interesting question so uh, yeah so i started playing when i was super young um and like the first module i played is still seared into my brain and i wish i could remember the name of it but it's one of the like the most popular sort of ad and level one modules there's definitely a castle involved and a dungeon <laughs> and my favorite moment we were like in a dark room and somebody found what was described to them as like a furry leather like bag and when they reached inside it was full of like wet squishy stuff and then when somebody lit a torch it turned out it was a severed head <laughs> somebody had like reached in through the mouth or something like that and they were like Bleh. and i was nine and that just blew my mind um and then i started like so in elementary school i don't know if this is the case where you grew up um Dice and cards were banned from really? playgrounds. Yeah, you could not. Uh, you know, I, I you know this was north of just north of Chicago proper. I mean, this was like not a bad neighborhood. We were not shooting craps. You know, <laughs> but they, it was but it was specifically to prevent gambling, which mm-hmm. you know seemed like insane to me even as a you know nine year old. Um, so I started uh, doing this sort of, I guess what you would now call kind of like a free form uh, role playing where you know it would be me and my friends and it was just sort of more structured make-believe mm-hmm. like we'd be doing we would be playing this game that we called dungeons and dragons but it was really this sort of like freeform improv with a storyteller right but we had to come up with a probability mechanic to replace the dice and what we did i actually think was kind of cool we would we would um the dm would say well choose a number between one and ten or one and twenty or one and five you know mm-hmm. based on the difficulty of the thing and the dm would hold a number behind their back with their fingers and the closer you guess to the number the dm had the 
you know, better your outcome was. Oh, interesting. Which, of course, we realized very quickly allowed the DM, you know, to just manipulate whatever was happening. Because if nobody can see your fingers behind your back, you can hold up whatever fingers you want and nobody will know. Mm -hmm. So and that's sort of a great lesson for being a DM. It's like it doesn't matter what the dice rolls are. You use whatever the dice roll is to tell the story you want to tell. Mm -hmm. So that got baked in pretty early. So I did that in elementary school quite a bit, just like back and forth. Um, I would run a game, quote unquote, and they were like pretty psychedelic and surreal in the way that like young children storytelling stuff is. Mm -hmm. And then in middle school, I started playing like more formal Dungeons and Dragons again because this friend of mine had this upstairs neighbor um, who was like in his 30s and he would run games for this big group of kids and we played with him for like six years. Yeah. Uh, And that was incredible. Like it's sort of hard to explain because I think anytime you describe like a 30-year-old man hanging out with a room full of adolescents, it like immediately alarm bells. Well, except that I like that was kind of my my experience was similar except that it was at a community center. Like the only the only difference is instead of this guy's house, it was like, no, 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 everybody just goes to like the Tacoma Park Community Center or like the Piney Branch Middle School gym one day, you know, one day every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it was sort of like that. Um, he actually described in high school. He described us as his midnight basketball game. <laughs> where, like if we were not playing D and D with him, we'd be out like murdering people, which was nuts because we were a bunch of pathetic losers. You know, like, <laughs> we were the biggest nerds you can imagine. So his name is Terry, and he runs a comic book shop now in Chicago mm-hmm. um, called Third Coast Comics, which you should go to if you're in the area. And he was great because he was the first person who sort of taught me that you could be a nerd and also be cool and mm-hmm. maybe not cool and like i'm you know not cool in a way that anybody else is going to necessarily recognize but you could sort of be cool on your own terms sure and like you didn't have to be ashamed of what you like to do mm-hmm. and that's something i've carried with me forever and that's when i really got interested in dming because i think it around you know i was graduating high school going to college and i realized like i have to keep doing this i just i have no choice like i have to keep playing role-playing games Mm -hmm. so then i started dming a lot just because nobody else knew how or wanted to or had their shit together yeah so then i had a pretty stable group in college and after and yeah and that gets me to where i am today with like more 3.5 D &D books than i know what to do with in a (laughs) Enduring refusal to upgrade to 4.0 or 5.0 or any of the other games because I've got all these books now. Uh, I'm so into I'm I'm so into the idea of 5.0 just because I feel like it lends itself to that like that early level improv based mm-hmm. like it's so much more character driven than than math driven. But I also feel like there's something about the math and rolling a 20 sided die that that forces you to make a decision you wouldn't necessarily make or to be stuck in a place that you wouldn't necessarily be. Yeah, that. Like, human, even, like, some role players are really good at, like, playing the character, not the player gaming the system, or, like, being honest to the losses and, like, the, the, and the hardship that comes with, that your character faces when shit goes bad, but some, like, but human, like, that's not, that's not what humans want to, want to do, you want to just have it all be good all the time that's like the natural inclination of the character you're playing is i want this to be great for me so why would i let this happen and be bad so i guess you gotta force it a little bit 
Yeah, no, that's true. And that's like a hard thing. I've <laughs> I've had tears in my games. I've had actual tears because things started going poorly for a character. And rather than, you know, finding the fun in that and the good story in that, people were just upset that they were, you know, losing. Right. And it's not a game that you can win or lose. No. That's um, hard to explain. It is. How much how much of your early DM stuff was world building? Was world building always part of what drew you in or was it really character stuff and then you realized, oh wait, for this character to exist, there needs to be the space or or, or how how that Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it was definitely the world building. I think I've only really gotten excited about characters mm -hmm. uh, recently, like in the last, you know, I'm in, I'm 29 now, and I think I only started getting interested in actual characters in like the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. um, no, the world building, because that's, you know, because being like a fantasy nerd or sci-fi nerd, you're always just into the world building and just looking at the maps and the back of the book and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the characters that I needed for my games, I would just steal from other books. Right. Um, like... Oh, shit. Who are those two guys in um, Neverwhere? The two really scary guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> I forget their name. Uh, I, I rip them off all the time. I've put them in, like, a bunch of different D&D campaigns in one guys or another. I think I put them in a game that you played. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I definitely... My favorite story about the two of them is where I work now. One of the partners is very tall, and the head of political was... They're, they're both very, very... They're brilliant, lovely compassionate people but i had just finished neverwhere i think like a month before i had my second round of interviews and i walked into a room and it was the two of them sitting there grilling me about my qualifications Ooh. for this job and i was just like oh man you are gonna like just start eating a porcelain doll right now and everything's about to go to shit <laughs> um and pulling out just like giant rusty knives out of everywhere yeah <laughs> and i'm nowhere near as cool as the count um or is it no not the count um, the marquis the marquis the marquis de sad i uh, throw him into all kinds of games where characters like him too but that's the beauty of i think that's the beauty of role play like the beauty of games like dungeons and dragons or apocalypse world and the and all of the engines built off of it is that you can take these characters these like these tropes that really talented and brilliant writers have created for us and fit them into the world that was i mean that's the whole dnd is birthed out of gygax being like i want lord of the rings to be here like let's what if i make lord of the rings a thing in yeah. the world i mean that's not that's not what fair if my what gygax, if my tabletop but... war game what if my little miniature here could cast fireball instead of you know something boring yeah like yeah. shoot a gun yeah yeah um and i think it makes it easier for players if you uh, are sort of engaged with these broad archetypes, mm -hmm. especially new players, because they'll be like, oh, I know what to do with this guy. Yeah. Because I've watched Game of Thrones and I know that he's bad. Yep. Because he sort of reminds me of Littlefinger or, you know, whatever you can sort of. The key is to not rip them off too directly, but just to sort of gesture at these characters that people are already familiar with mm. well and and because those characters are so like so heavily based on things we already see in the world like yeah. the are uh, any trope in a book is like this distillation of something that people encounter in their daily lives and you know being and then you just refine that a little bit further and you're like here's the embodiment of evil is it bad i mean but yeah, probably but, <laughs> i mean but some of the best games that i've played with you and with other people take that trope and then they're like i don't know is he like <laughs> compared to what because inevitably like the, the the sustainability of any game like this is that you're gonna get to a point where 
you know, you have the big bad, but if you want to keep playing, there's got to be a bigger bad. And if you have to face the bigger bad and the big bad wasn't as bad, like maybe, maybe friends, maybe friends later. And the key for villains specifically that I've always felt is that nobody thinks of themselves as a bad person. Mm -hmm. Like the villain is the hero of their own story. Right. And that's what makes them interesting. And ultimately that's what makes them probably the most interesting people in the game. Um, so well, I always try and give them a very good reason to be doing whatever terrible thing it is that they're doing. And the more terrible the thing, the better the reason. Yeah. That's also something I've found really enjoyable about the worlds that you've created, specifically the, the big world that you've been creating for most of the time that I've, I've been playing with you is that you, it's complicated that they're, the good guys aren't <laughs> like the good guys are good sometimes, but that you know, you cross borders into other places and those good guys aren't as good. Mm -hmm. Like what you talk about, like the guy, the guy who hired you to do this thing. Yeah. He's awesome where you're from, but here he's that, he's that asshole that built that mine. You know, my uncle died in that mine. Mm, my kid yeah. works in that mine and we still can't, we still can't pay the farm, mm. pay the local farmers for nearly enough meat to mm. keep us all going. Mm. Like that guy, fuck that guy. Um, and I think that, I think that one of the things I really like about the, uh, the world building that you do is that it feels really honest. It's so oh. like it's so easy and it's so easy in games like this not to be honest to the realities of what it costs to be a hero. Mm -hmm. A lot of experienced DMs do that. Like you know, it's like you're the heroes, everything's great. It's like you're the heroes. Maybe you just burn down a city. Like maybe maybe you just started a revolution that didn't have to happen this way. What yeah. you gonna do about that? And that brings up a couple of interesting things, you know, because I, I think that what I try to do is I strive for verisimilitude, which is a word that I think I always pronounce wrong. Uh, but you want things to be internally consistent. Yeah, it's a fantastical world and there's magic and stuff, but you still want, you know, supply and demand and motivation to be legible and consistent. And I think a lot of DMs play the game more from an aesthetic standpoint. They want the aesthetic of heroes or villains and dungeons and stuff. And then the motivation doesn't make, it isn't as important because you're just sort of checking these sort of tropey boxes. Mm -hmm. And I'm more interested in seeing what happens when you put people in situations where they want a thing and to get that thing, they've got to do something difficult or dangerous or bad. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the game systems I like the most is Torchbearer, which uh, yeah. starts with the premise of what if the hero is actually like the biggest loser in the world? Like what if you're going into a dungeon to steal a necklace from a skeleton because your life sucks and you have no better options? And I really like that. Um, because there's something like totally fucking unhinged about, whoa, can I say fuck on this? Yeah. Great. Do you comedy beep or do you just let it go? No, it's all, they all get the explicit tag. Fuck. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, no, and I think that's great because like D and D like, yeah, I'm a wizard and what do I do for fun? I just recreational spelunking and murder. That's fucking, you're nuts. You're a crazy person. Why are you doing that? You're a wizard. Like, couldn't you just like see what's on the orb tonight? Like, do you have to go out even? What's wrong with you? So, like, you've, you've got to give people, I think, really good reasons or, I mean, and this is just my pet thing. I mean, I don't think you have to play the game this way, but I think it makes it more fun for me uh, because I don't want the answer to be like, why is this happening to be like, well, because Dungeons and Dragons, because that's fine. But yeah. that's I'm I've been doing this for so long that I'm sort of bored of that answer. Yeah, I think it's more compelling as a, as a player because it looks it looks more like like it. it it feels more like participating in art in that art reflects 
the world. Like, mm-hmm. you know, good art, good storytelling reflects the world that it's produced in and that if you're playing if you're playing a game that's totally escapist, then the world you're the then your commentary on the world there is everything's shit and I don't look at it. <laughs> um, but if you're playing a game that's, you know, no, there are costs to these things and like, yeah, you can go be you can go be a dude who throws fireballs and saves maidens and kills dragons. But there are consequences to that and like part of the fun of the game is and part of the fun of building a character that you actually care about is how do I feel about the cost when I can slay the dragon or save the dude, but I can't do both. Mm-hmm. Like, do you follow the self-interest of I'm in love with this person, but if I leave this dragon here, he's going to go burn down that town. Right. Like if, you know, if you have meaningful cost, it makes the gameplay both more enjoyable in the sense that it's more engaging and also like more true to the things that we talk about in, in day-to-day life in terms of, you know, living in, like living in DC, the cost of, I want to be in the city, but I don't want to pay too much. But I also recognize that if I want to live in the city and not pay too much, I'm now competing with communities that have been here for forever that are being priced out of other parts of the city too. Right. That's the thing that I think about. I don't think that's the thing that most people think about like all in, in relation to each other. But I think that it, honest role play becomes this interesting space to explore those consequences and, and what those things mean. Well, interesting way to um, tie D and D to gentrification. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, you could do what I did and just have seven roommates for three years. Um, and that was wild, but yeah, it, and it's really difficult getting people to sort of invest emotionally in their characters because I think that game of Thrones has kind of fucked people up a little bit and they're mm-hmm. like, well, I give them and be a bad guy and I'm going to do bad stuff and I don't care because I'm a cool bad guy and it's kind of boring I'd rather I I usually don't talk about yeah, okay, so in D&D, you have the alignment system, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Good, neutral, lawful mm-hmm. uh, evil, chaos you know, on this sort of radial axis and I don't usually talk about that much because I don't really care, I just want people to be like invested in their character and to have their character have like clear motivations Mm -hmm. and those can be like good or bad, but you know, as long as they exist and they're consistent, it gives me something to work with. Right. If that makes sense. Well, and cause people aren't, people aren't good or evil or chaotic or neutral. Like that's, this is, it's, it's, Right, that's all. It turns out the whole thing's a mad D and D. It's all made up. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they. That's the secret. They don't tell you one hundred percent imaginary. I also think riffing on Littlefinger a little bit. Littlefinger, it it frustrates me to no end that he's one of the most talented actors on the show because Littlefinger's the worst character in that universe. Like Littlefinger's the only. Character... Do you mean worst in terms of like evil, or worst in terms of like poorly written, like bad character from a writing perspective? That one. Okay, worst is worst is not fair, but he's he's too smart to be that myopic. And this might this is like might just be me. He's this brilliant guy who has all of these all of these resources and all of this ambition. He came from nothing, and his goal is to like politic his way to the throne, but we don't see him in a redeeming light. Like, it's not that he as a character isn't well-written. It's that he situationally isn't well-presented. Yeah, and I think, well, so, full disclosure, I've stopped watching the show because I started to hate it. Fair. Um, But I've read all the books, and I think that it's also, like, the way that he's used is uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, secret... um, 
you know, monarchist, classist biases coming out. Because Littlefinger's this, like, essentially middle-class guy Mm -hmm. trying to subvert the monarchy through, like, money. And they're like, no, what we really need is hereditary nobility because genetically some people are just suited to rule. That's fucked up. Yeah. That's fucked up, boring fantasy stuff. I'm really hoping, like, the great thing about Game of Thrones, especially the first book, is the way that George R. R. Martin was subverting Mm -hmm. the genre Mm -hmm. and, like spoilers you know you think ned is going to be the main character and then he's really not um <laughs> really really not. really not and that was so and it's like hard to explain to people who like the tv show like how exciting that was to read that you know years 10 years ago 15 years ago whenever it came out god yeah. it's like people just didn't write books that way mm-hmm. um and i'm hoping that he surprises all of us and doesn't go for the ending that everybody now sees coming yeah, I mean, I, I guess my... Like, I hope that the Seven Kingdoms become, like, a, a radical, uh, you know, participatory democracy. I don't know. I mean, that would be that would be awesome. But I feel, like, I feel like there's a, there's a place for that in the structure of it. Part of the problem with the whole show is that when you have so many characters and you don't want them all to look the same, they all become very tropey because they all have these individual things that make them some like specifically unique from other characters. Like, sure, there are lots of similarities and... and Certain characters are, are sort of this, playing the same role in different spaces, but like the books have literally hundreds of people who we care about, and and like dozens of perspectives, and like over a dozen, I think over a dozen perspectives that we really see presented, not from their view, but like lots of page time and lots of arguing of perspective. When you're building a world that expansive, it's hard not to end up pigeonholing a lot of it so that it doesn't feel repetitive. That's true, but. I'm impressed with how well he built that world as a geography. Like, I think there's something, there's something to be said for this is like, <laughs> he, he did, he did take um, the Isle of, uh, of Great Britain and then turn it upside down, he took <laughs> which the Isle is of Great very Britain, cool. Turn it upside down and then, and then made a bunch of, and then was like, cool, how do I make this work? There are a bunch of subcontinents. There are a bunch of like, or this is a weird subcontinent and there are a bunch of bigger continents. And like part of the problem with the show is that it makes more a whole lot more of the world feel known than I think is known in universe, like inside of the book. Yeah. Like, like inside of the books, there's all like we're seeing a very small part of this massive world, which is dealing with this one thing. And like it alludes to all of this space that is out there that and, no one goes to because it's just fucking far away. And this is a great <clears throat> a great lesson in world building is uh, uh, imply a lot more. And you don't need to, like, as a storyteller, you don't have to have any idea what's actually going on. You just have to drop a lot of really intriguing hints and let people's imaginations do the work. And, and this is why maps are the best part of, like, a lot of fantasy books because maps do this wonderful thing where you both feel like, ooh, I know, a, I, I'm learning a lot. Like, I now know where all this stuff is. Mm-hmm. But it then... Uh, conceals so much more than it reveals because it, it it implies so much. You see, like, oh, you know, there's the city of, you know, whatever, and oh, well, what could be going on there? So it it, you know, exponentially, uh, it, it's exponentially more mysterious than it is revealing, or at least a good map, right? Which is super exciting. That's something George Martin, George R. R. Martin has done really well in the books is just like imply that there's all this like even weirder stuff happening around the margins. Um, and and I think that, and part of, and what's frustrating is about the show is that the visual, like when the visuals filled in that mystery gets muted. Yep. 
Um, because like Karth, Karth is supposed to be weird in a way that like you can't even see. Yeah. Like there isn't a visual trans. Like there isn't a visual translation for how weird that city state is. And and they talk about in the in the books they're talking about how all of these people, like Karth, is also this weird melting pot of people who are outside of the maps that we have coming in and being like you know, here, you know, here to do weird magic and just be strange in this place. We lose the whole, uh, false dragon and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, Dorn, um, and like, and, and Dornish marriage, uh, side plots in the, in the show. They screwed up every, all the Dorn stuff so badly. That's when I stopped watching as it was painful. Because like Dorn is like, Dorn is this weird gateway to other parts of the world. And then like, we could we could talk for three That's hours true. on we this. Should, we should, we should get off the Game, getting, of, getting get off the game yeah. of Thrones. Hopping back on maps, what you do now? Oh, as a as a master of are you you're a master of I'm a master. city planning of urban design. What's the uh, what's the technical title? Uh, I I have a master's degree in community planning. Community planning, which could mean anything. I don't know what that means. Um, and I focus on transportation systems. Was like, did D and D get you into that? Like, I, we've never had this conversation. I'm I'm curious about how yeah. much it played in. Well, that, that is interesting. I think I think sort of. I think there's a couple of things that got me here, in professionally. You know, so st- maybe not D and D specifically, but storytelling in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for five years as a tour guide, and and that's actually really what got me interested because as a tour guide, you are moving people through the built environment and trying to make it. Legible and trying to craft a narrative that's like engaging. Um, and so specifically, I was doing architectural tours in Chicago and I was doing bicycle and Segway tours of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And the National Mall, of course, is this like intensely, you know, sort of psychedelic mythic mm-hmm. space of, you know, sort of profane uh, architecture. I mean, there's like a giant wang right in the middle and, <laughs> you know, and like pagan, just like obviously pagan occult symbolism all tied up in our natural or our national, I should say, mythology and all this stuff. So it's like a really interesting space. So what I realized over the course of five years, you know, through my early and mid twenties is that I really like the built environment and I like moving people through it. I didn't love the tourism part though tourism's not a super uh what's the word it sucks man it's a drag like you yelled at and hot and sweaty all the time and you know chased around by the park police Mm -hmm. so i wanted to do those things but drop the the tour part yeah (laughs) yep so i got a degree in urban planning and now (laughs) i work as the uh bicycle planner for the university of maryland that's awesome i like it a lot super cool i feel like tour like tourism has this weird like this weird capitalist artifice about travel like it's like how can Mm. we make people going to a city which would generally be like i'm gonna go to a city and like check out some old stuff and eat some food and just be in a different place how can we make more money off that how can we make you feel like you haven't seen all the stuff you're supposed to see if you don't do this yep which is weird it's a weird business to be in and the 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 tour itself is like 
sort of a narcotic because it's this like three hour um, time that you have to connect with people intensely and like try to really engage with them and make sure they're having an incredibly good time, which means you have to be super on and super empathetic because if you do that well, they give you money, (laughs) which is great. It's like every three hour bicycle tour was like a game I was playing against a dozen people and the stakes were like 50 bucks that I needed for beer. So it was very serious. And when you win that game and they give you the the money, it's like incredible. And I would always about an hour later crash really hard. Mm -hmm. Like whatever serotonin endorphin stuff was happening in my brain would be like, and we're out. (laughs) And then I would get so depressed. (laughs) It was really strange. I find that fascinating because you basically do that for free in your free time just in a made-up world instead of, like, out in the real world, which is kind of hilarious. Well, I guess when you're doing it for fun rather than for money, it's, like, it's fun. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah. No. Like, I would never – like, I make this joke about DC where everybody turns their hobby into their job. Like, if you enjoy doing something, you should probably find a way to monetize it or, like, uh, turn it into a resume builder. No offense to anybody because, like, everybody I know does this. It's just a weird thing about this city. But I would never (laughs) – start doing like i would never start a dnd lifestyle blog or a dnd service where i did it for money i would never want to do that or because some sort of talk show podcast i you know just off the top of my head i don't well okay look i like the podcasts are fun i would do that that sounds fun but i wouldn't want to it couldn't be for professional or financial gain because that puts it in a different box in my head, which just makes it not. So the, the urban planning thing, you know, Fair. is good because Fair. it like touches things that I like, but I don't take it home with me. You know, mm-hmm. I like my job. I don't love my job. Mm-hmm. My job's like awesome, but like, you know, it's not my everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have a lot of weird ideas that like you should love your job and you should do these things that you're super passionate about. And I don't think that's true. Because I think down that road lies madness, or certainly you don't get out much. I don't no. know. No. I don't know if I'm making any sense right now. So that, that tracks a lot, and I feel like it's a thing that I often end up back at, which is the idea that the problem with doing what you love for money is the money part. If I didn't have to worry about money, then of course I would just do the things that I love to, to do, and it wouldn't be an issue. But once you once once like once you combine, once you combine the... the thing you're passionate about with the way that you sustain yourself it adds this layer of pressure that some people can't separate from but that it's it's tough well right it's because like with my job it's like okay i like it i like doing bicycle planning it's really cool i get to say like there should be a bike lane there or whatever um and i get to like do a lot of educational work and work with students and that's really fun but like you know god forbid if i got fired it wouldn't (laughs) be the end of my life i mean i'd be like bummer uh i now i need to find a new job and it could be a different thing and that would be fine you know as long as i was still doing uh transportation planning i'd be probably just as happy Mm -hmm. you know i would be just as happy at a dc department of transportation trying to unfuck metro you know that would be fun oh god that could be even more fun or doing you know bicycle stuff at at a county level or city level That that would be totally cool and yeah i would just hate to have this feeling of like it must be so terrible to have your job be your passion and love it because like jobs are these things that you can lose. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, a, that's, uh, man, that's, that's fascinating. That's really interesting because I, so for me, I think I have a unique perspective there because I've never worked like full time for, for an extended period of time, like more than a year 
in a space that wasn't kind of what I already do. Like I grew up working as a PA and a stagehand. I, uh-huh. you know, I've been doing, I've been doing some form of this for pretty much my entire life. And in the same way that if at 13, you went off an apprentice for a blacksmith and that just sort of became the thing that you do, it's less of a job and more of like a trade, which is a weird, which is something that I hadn't really thought about. Like the, the difference between a job and tradecraft, because the challenge of trade is that, you know, this is the thing you're going to do wherever you're doing it in some form or another so my response to that is okay cool i'm just gonna do this thing really well the way i like to do it and and well, no that makes sense but i also feel like my job and i aren't different things a lot of the time i don't really stop being a producer when i'm not at work i use the same tools when i'm like organizing my room or cooking like the the, the skill set is, hmm. is basically the same um and i don't think that's true for everybody but like in the same way that i feel like you know and and that's not true all the time but that i think that like that sort of some, there's something about that kind of trade craft or or how i learned how to work that feels a whole lot more integrated than that so this this recalls me to Hannah Arendt has a useful distinction I think between work and labor, uh, labor being the stuff you got to do to pay your rent and work being the stuff that you've got to do to feel like you have value, mm-hmm. you know, because like being unemployed sucks, you know, if you lose your job you get super depressed and lay around all day and just feel bad um, because you're not working, but you know, you could get a job digging ditches. And if you were not particularly passionate about the project of ditch digging, that would just be labor. Um, and I think I'm lucky that like if work and labor are a Venn diagram, you know, there's sort of a like a 75% overlap and that's my job, mm-hmm. which is nice. But I think you don't want it to be a 100% overlap of those two things. Like if your job is 100% both your work and your labor, mm-hmm. um, I think be careful. I think that puts you in sort of a precarious position um, because you could lose your job or you could burn out on it and then you've thrown yourself unnecessarily in a sort of an existential crisis and that could happen just anyway so don't do it if you don't have to that's Um, i also don't think of i think of myself like i think of my job like my like my trade and my employment as being different things and i think that's it's sort of similar i think that is yeah yeah like i think of myself as a producer but i don't think i'm like i'm not a producer for my firm all the time but i am always this thing I've, I've sort of created the space where i'm always kind of a producer even when i'm not that is interesting um so if uh, one more thing i i was gonna about the work labor thing mm, yes which i think we're having this weird like crisis in our country because i think there is a genuine shortage of work um and i think that we are seeing a scarcity of work because work in terms of sort of uh, existential uh, validation is being hoarded by you know, the 1%, the privileged class, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Leisure time used to be the hallmark of success and wealth. And now leisure time actually has more social, is more of a social signifier of, you know, the poor, the dispossessed, the welfare recipient, you know, these people are lying around. Like rich people are very busy, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is like, we all know this, that they're all very busy. Um, And poor people are not very busy. It used to be the other way around. You know, you go back a hundred years, the rich were idle. Uh, They're not anymore. And I think it's because we are seeing a sort of a scarcity of not only monetary value but a scarcity of like existential value um 
in a lot of people. And I think that this is a product, you know, of automation. And I think as there becomes, you know, less less labor to go around, you know, we can sort of fix that problem by just like making up stuff for people to do. But I think it's really hard to replace the fact that there is less work to go around for whatever reason. Right. Um, and I think when those, when work and labor are sort of yoked together in the way that capitalism yokes them together, we start to have a permanent class of people who might labor or might not, but certainly are not working. Sure. And that causes, that I sense. think, a lot of the issues that we're having right now. And then fascism becomes really appealing because, like, that gives you a lot of work to do. Sure. And you've got a lot of time. Well, so I, fascism. <laughs> I also wonder if the perception has shifted that way, but I, I'm not sure if the actual structure has shifted that way. Like, the whole the whole idea of the, the idle unemployed, which I think is, to some extent, the growing homelessness issue across the United States and the growing number of people who are underemployed definitely lends to that. But you also have people who are working three or four part-time jobs to pay rent. And I think what's more telling is the distinction, like an intellectual distinction between labor and work in that these people aren't working in the sense of doing the thing, doing a thing that is driving and defining and, and, you know, comes from, from a place of like passion and engagement Whereas the wealthy are able to do so and it has become, if anything, it has become a symbol of status to do that work in a way that is bigger and more effective. Like, I think if you look at the idea of the idle class, the names that we remember are the exception. Like any prolific writers or artists or painters of, say, pre-revolution France, like they were working all the time because that that was an aspect of, of what you do. And I think that you know, in the last two centuries, there's been an increased zeal to work as a symbol of engagement and status. The bigger issue is the divorce, the merging of the concept of labor and work, which then divorces the meaning from both. We as a society recognize, don't recognize any sort of distinction between the two. Yeah. And because we have done so we've removed the need for things like education or training from the perception of effective work even if even if there is more time for people to be working if their only structure for what work looks like is purely labor based and and not built around any any sort of I, I, it's tough. I, I like, I don't want to use positive is too weighted. Productive is too weighted. Like work for the sake of creating a thing that, that drives and inspires you to keep creating. Um, I think is the, is, is the shortest way I can say it without, without some sort of baseline for what that looks like. What well, do you, you do know, with the time? I, I think the best example of this in, in fantasy or science fiction or whatever to bring it back to that a little bit sure. yeah. is Star Trek does a great job of imagining, you know, a post-capitalist future where people are like working real hard, but they don't have to, they have replicators. They just every, you know, they need, everybody needs a project. Yeah. God, I hope we get there and that we don't end up in any of the other, I mean, (laughs) in any of the other dystopias like next generation where the Borg are like, why are you, why? Why are you doing that? Like, what's the point? Stop it. (laughs) I do greatly admire Star Trek for being utopian. 
I think that's my favorite. I find watching it really boring. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I like the idea of Star Trek a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy actually watching it. <laughs> and I've watched a lot of it, and I just, and I, because I feel like I should like it more, but then it's, I usually get pretty bored. Yeah. It's tough to like a utopia because it's tough to like watching a utopia because utopia is inherently dispersed conflict. Like, it's hard to have a utopia that is not at least a little bit conflict-averse by its structure. Yeah, um, that is true. Because conflict conflict breeds imbalance, and imbalance leads power, and power breeds... Okay, Yoda. Well, I mean, you know. Man, that would walk about... <laughs> yeah, how did we get here? How did we get to how this did, strange place? How did we place? get to this strange place? We were talking about... I think we were talking... <laughs> oh, I brought us here. You were talking about um, your job... Oh, yes. I, I like my job, but I like don't love job, it. but you don't love it. Which is good. Yeah. Because of capitalism and then later Star Trek. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But I also actually... Okay, cool. Now I remember what I wanted to talk about, which is what's fascinating about the whole role-playing structure is that you're this character that does literally one thing. Like, you're going into this world and being this character that does one thing. And it does this one thing really, really well. But there's an inherent one-dimensional, uh, one-dimensionality to... Is that a big hurdle for creating an interesting world with people playing inside of it? Or does it does it just give you this uh, a freedom to create spaces for players to walk into so that those characters stop being one-dimensional? Uh, that's a really interesting question, and I think it is a big challenge, um, especially if you think about, uh, yeah, so all of your players have a job, right? Like I, a thief, uh, the wizard, fighter, all whatever. Um, and the idea of your thief showing up being like, well, this is just what I do to pay my rent. You know, really, I'm a dancer. But the, the whole thief thing, you know, that's just my day job. I, yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm just doing that until I get my big break at the <laughs> fantasy city ballet. There's no way for that not to come across as a joke. And actually, now that I say that out loud, I now desperately want to play that character mm-hmm. who's like, you know, okay, yeah, like I do the thief thing. But, I, you know, it's not like my main thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds incredible. That sounds like a lot of fun. I would also... And this is a tangent. I would love to play a character who, you know, as soon as you drop into a role-playing game setting, you've just accepted a huge amount of violence as normal, mm-hmm. um, which it, I just think is actually really fucked up. And I, I would love to play a character who, like, you're, you know, you're in a sword fight and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. And then somebody gets killed and that character's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, there's no need for that. <laughs> like, we could just not do that. My God, like it just gets very upset, and like that I think would be really interesting. I don't know what's wrong with me, Bruno, that I think that that sounds like a fun thing to do. No, and I think so. Here's I'm going to say this: go. You really need to do the friends at the table thing, and I I would strongly suggest looking into systems like Dungeon World. There are a lot of I feel like a lot of the D6 based games uh-huh. are built a little bit more about that narrative that's less less conflict based like D is really is really about like we're gonna solve this thing like when push comes to shove we're just gonna blow it up yeah probably the way this is gonna go is a bunch of people are gonna die right I, well so next time i get to play in a game i'm definitely gonna play a tap dancing thief who hates to kill people <laughs> and that's gonna be great but i think that so in so that's the challenge like on the player character side on the non-player character side it's really challenging because like you know you're talking to a dude and like what he's a level four commoner like what the fuck does that mean Mm -hmm. um and you need to do some of that for the mechanics to work you know you need to like oh he's making a bluff check and i now i need to know what number to add to that but like 
it's insane that you, you know, these characters are sort of reduced down to these very bare archetypes. And then anything else you put on top of that is just sort of window dressing. It's just mm-hmm. sort of like flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but really there's this hard core of numbers that defines the character. Um, so that is hard to navigate. But what I like about specifically 3.5 edition Dungeons and Dragons is that it, it has become so like mushroomed out from its initial set of ideas and Mm -hmm. there's just so much excess there's a lot of space inside it Mm -hmm. uh to play around and to find like the pieces you need and i've been doing it for so long i sort of have this sort of you know rough working knowledge of all the bits and bobs and little Mm -hmm. gears that fit together um and i like how excessive it is and how much like room there is inside of it Right. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Because it gives you the space to like, at no point will someone write a comprehensive tabletop game. Like you're never going to have a thing that covers all of like all of the possible bases. Like it's just never going to happen. And and that, and you can play those sort of more minimalist, uh, D six games, um, where, you know, you've only got three attributes and it's just very improv mm-hmm. and that's fine too. But I like the gaminess of D and D too. I like, I like the part of it that it is also a game mm-hmm. and that there's a strategic, you know, Oh, I, I want to put my points into this skill so I can be good at doing this thing because I, I like the game part of it a lot. Yeah, for sure. And it also, I mean, it also means that it, it also forces you to, if you're playing, if you're playing well, if you're playing in, in an interesting way, like I, I always play either a bitter old fuck who <laughs> who's like too damn smart and who does this because the world has ruined everything beautiful, which is how I justify, you know, being real good at killing people, or someone who's like just totally psychologically distant and and isn't really connected to the world because they're either too smart for it or a little bit broken. But I think that one of the I've never played a bard. Oh, and man. I feel like bards are D&D's best class for like Oh, n- yes, they are. I'm going to talk the best. you into like no, instead of doing this thing, I'm going to talk you into being our best friend. Like we are friends now, dragon. We are going to be cool. I would love to play I I don't know if I ever could play a bard because I would commit to it so much. Like I would show up to every game with like a ukulele or whatever and I would just start like barding all over the place and people would hate that. I don't know. Um Oh, here's an idea for a character. I forget if I told you about this, mm. but that uh prior to my tap dancing pacifist thief idea, um I really want to play a character and this is like an evil character and I don't usually do evil. Mm-hmm. Um and his whole deal is, is he he's like the sixth son of an earl or something like he's in he's nobility but never going to inherit mm-hmm. um so the way that he sort of supports his lavish lifestyle mm-hmm. is that he gets to a new city um figures out who hates each other like in the upper class like mm-hmm. who's feuding right. he goes to one side and he says look if you pay me I'll kill your rival and it'll never come back on you and there'll be totally no consequences. And they're like, how do you do this? And he's like, watch. And he just goes to a party, Mm -hmm. um, meets the person who's his target, Mm -hmm. insults him, spills his drink on him, provokes the person to the point where they challenge him to a duel. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out the character is extremely good at dueling and just fucking kills him. Yeah. And so he's basically an assassin who is manipulating social... Uh, uh, rules and he does all of his murdering in plain view in full view of everyone but because it's this culture where there's you know a culture of dueling 
um God, that's he so takes skinny. advantage of that. Yeah, no, he's like a huge slime ball because, oh. like, probably most of these duels are just like two first blood. But he, you know, mm-hmm. will only accept duels if they're to the death, and mm-hmm. then he just always kills people and makes a lot of money doing it. And yeah, one of the interesting things about games like D anD D is that they can be this like self commentary. I struggle a lot with playing a character that I feel like can engage in the world more than I can. Like what, I, that, what does that mean? So, I like I can throw myself wholeheartedly into a game of D anD D, but I'm always very aware that I'm playing a role. Like always, always, always. I can't mm. like it's it's and I think maybe I've I haven't played I haven't played much since I've been doing this or since I've like been doing improv just because who has the time? But nobody, uh, nobody. <laughs> but I think I and maybe I'd be better at it. But part of part of my like part of all of the character roles that I play end up becoming very distant and sort of like in and above like a little bit you do have that uh, tendency i've noticed like that, yeah. and i'm critical of that because i feel like it takes away from my ability to like really get into it and have fun with folks and it also also makes my characters not one-dimensional but feel very it's the surly dude who's just sitting around or like they just they pop in and pop out i feel more like uh an npc than an actual player character. Like, uh, I'm there to fill... Like, I'm there to, to run cleanup for the crew. And I think part of that part of that is my personality. Part of that is I'm not used to playing with experienced players. Like, every... I feel like any time I get to a place where it's like, oh, cool, this game is cooking, everyone's like... Everybody's like, oh, shit, I gotta move. Oh, shit, I gotta, like... Or, <laughs> yeah, it's or, I got a new job, I don't have time. It's hard, um, yeah. And I think that part of what's cool about D&D is it can give players and GM space to do some self-analysis that is inherently a little bit distant. Like, oh, yeah. It, like the space for self-exploration that it can be right on the nose, but because you're pretending to be somebody else, it's, it's you know, easier to stomach. And I think that's really important. And I, <laughs> like, here we are, you know, we're both getting close to 30 and we both like play Dungeons and Dragons and mm-hmm. I'm never going to stop. No. Because I think you need a space of play to explore um, ideas and feelings that you don't get to have in your normal life. Um, I talk about this a lot in the context of board games, but like, I think that games are a great space to explore these emotions, which are taboo. Mm -hmm. Like you don't get to betray your friends in real life. You don't Mm -hmm. get to manipulate them and stab them in the back, but you do get to do that playing games and it's all fun and it's okay. Uh, And I think it's important to have those feelings and like get to work through them in a safe space. Mm -hmm because um, otherwise how boring is your life yeah well and also D is also a really cool space and i think like we don't do it as much with our games um but D is also this really cool space to play with social construct and i think oh yeah like i think the games that i've played with you play a lot with capitalism yeah and a lot with and a lot with like what that means and what that means for like whoever is in the system and we also don't like romance and like and that kind of romance and sexuality have never been big parts of the games that we've played like very few people like i've been never been able touches, to bring but... that in not in my games in fact i've even explicitly shut it down sometimes when yeah. i see it happening because i'm i yeah whoop, it's hard it's been it's kind of risky and i also but it's also done a like it keeps us out of the space of like playing with gender roles or sexuality or like we don't we don't really go there we're 
like it, it becomes it, like the we're on jobs and we're doing these things. But I think that these games also allow people to do and like this is not new to this conversation um, at all is play with those spaces, like stretch those lines, push against like like push against what those things mean, because if you're outside of this world, then why like you don't have to play by any of the rules like it's all it's all just oh, that's entirely true. up that's in the true. air that's true um and if you want to run a game like that i will happily play in it but man, I, I know that that's beyond my uh well no my I, range i think there are people like i like i will mad props to austin walker that guy that guy does it and puts it out on the internet in a way that he and his he and his crew just know how to know how to do what they do in the same way we could talk about how like the whole initial structure of like races in D D is super racist but oh yeah i thought we were gonna get into that man like we that can, is so fucked up it is it is really fucked up but i was thinking about like it's and and i think we've come we've retconned it a little bit in modern stuff because like okay cool not all orcs are stupid and orcs are really strong and we can we can create all this history that justifies why they're really strong and like we can make elves even though elves are basically superheroes we can make their them frail and make them you know prideful to a fault and and say that that's enough but yep no it's just it's the whole thing is pretty i mean and and all of fantasy is guilty of this like mm-hmm. world of warcraft was probably the worst in in terms of explicitly oh, racially coding yeah. the playable characters who are monsters like the orcs were like explicitly african or jamaican or something like that and mm-hmm. the, or the, that was the trolls were jamaican and the beast men were like explicitly native american coding star wars is really bad about this mm-hmm. like obviously what the fuck is up with jar jar banks and the gungans and just every alien you meet is sort of this weird distorted racial stereotype, like the Asian fish people. And it's just uh, who are all about trade. What the yeah. fuck? But like good Star Wars, because there's like good Star Wars and bad stores. Uh, Star Wars, obviously, mm-hmm. like prequel trilogy, bad Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, you know, original trilogy, good Star Wars. Um, Star Wars Rebels, very good Star Wars. Oh, dude, yeah. Early Clone Wars, bad Star Wars. Later Clone Wars, good Star Wars. Yeah. I've actually started watching some of that stuff. I like it a lot. Oh, man, it's really good. And good Star Wars can, like, take the racially coding alien stuff and, like, do interesting things with it. Mm-hmm. Or at least make it less on the nose and offensive. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, but, so D&D has a problem with this. And it's a problem. The fundamental issue is othering, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to be... Per- precipitating violence against something you need it to be like alien and other and monstrous mm-hmm. um and i guess you also need it to be tropey and familiar so it isn't like a lovecraftian terror situation or something like that right uh yeah so D has done this in like a ton of fucked up ways that i tend to push back against um which is why in my game i don't think you've ever fought an orc no i don't think you've if you ever did have to go and fight a bunch of goblins that's not true that's not true really yeah dude the whole mirror is like like the 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 time that baradon was most in the in the shit was at when we were at the border in the mountains with the big cannon oh right and granted granted it was an orc who was possessed by Mm. a mirror demon that was leading a horde of undead and like it wasn't, but it wasn't. The other side of that is, it, I think you did a good job there because there wasn't a lot of flatness to that. It felt weighty, like none of it felt canned. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> but it's also the other. But the other side of it is, you can do it in a way that's like, yeah, this happened, but it's it's tough because 
as someone who's like talked to you about this and who who's played enough with people who who know what they're doing to to say like sometimes you're just in a fight and there's an orc and you kill them because you're on a battlefield and that's different from you're in a dungeon and a whole bunch of orcs live here for some reason and you're engaged in genocide and you're engaged in genocide <laughs> which is a different which is a different thing and i'm intru- i mean and i'll go there like i'll you know explore that because that's that's you know i'm trying to complicate the usual D stuff but yeah no the project is never just yeah go kill a bunch of orcs because of we need to it's more like I think remember I one in a torchbearer campaign you did it's like the skeletons are trying to kill you and it's like we kill them and it's like yeah but you're in their home like you they came li- into their house you, they live here what's wrong with you you just murdered a bunch of people you're terrible yeah think about that yeah no that's good stuff <laughs> um, that's fun I think <laughs> and so yeah so that's why my D&D campaigns tend to be pretty urban mm-hmm. um, because then you know you've got more nuance you know conflicts are more social Mm -hmm. um and there's easier ways to have multiple resolutions um and i like to use and so this is how it ties back into the urban planning thing Mm -hmm. so you know world building is my favorite part um and urban planning is definitely world building but for real life yeah and unfortunately the world that we're building here collaboratively in reality is like pretty grim um like I you know it is not utopian this is not like the project is not utopian it's it's kind of distressing and it's like difficult to be part of the sausage making process and like trying to nudge it in good directions but often um, not being able to because as an urban planner you're in this like liminal space between the public good and market forces Mm -hmm. like you're doing your best to act in the public interest but obviously you you know we live in a capitalist democracy uh and and being a planner you are not an elected official uh nor are you trying to make a profit um and you are trying to like thread the needle or find this like third way to do the right thing and often the right thing is not what people want like often people want something that's bad for them right um especially when it comes to parking for cars like people like this is a small thing right people want a place to park their car for free close to where they want to go be it their house or their business or whatever mm-hmm. that's bad that is we should not give that to people that is a thing that everybody wants and is and we should not have it um, because free parking or like cheap parking distorts the urban form i mean in obvious ways you need to have a lot of parking lots everywhere and then your city looks like it looks like houston which is like 40 percent surface parking lots and it's just like a hellscape mm-hmm. um but even in more subtle ways uh you know if you require um let's say you're opening a restaurant and we require you know one parking space for every thousand square feet of restaurant space that's crazy yeah uh it's super expensive to build and you have to price that into whatever you're selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so goods and services become more expensive. And this hurts the people who have the least because the um, cost of the free parking is priced in to everything they're doing. And we're, uh, you know, we should be spending that money, obviously, on mass transit to move people around more efficient, efficiently. And so we can have more density and things can be close together and we can walk. Um but that's, you know, we have this perverse incentive structure right. now. Uh, it incentivizes driving. It creates this, like, um, self-reinforcing spiral mm-hmm. where people drive because it's easier to drive and it's easier to drive because more people drive. Right. 
so this is like bad world building. Uh, and, and it produces um, a built environment which is toxic and monstrous. I mean, if you look at the suburbs, sprawl, uh, strip malls, cul-de-sacs, all of these things are are dangerous to us as animals, like as human beings as animals. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have a car, these are uh, very difficult to, to move in. These, these environments, these built environments are physically dangerous for you to move in. And there's all kinds of, you know, pedestrian deaths and, you know, people walking uh, on the shoulder of, you know, roads that are 50 miles an hour and they get, you know, killed and stuff. Right. And they just didn't have a choice because there's no bus and there's no, and they don't have a car or whatever. Um, or they have like a shitty bicycle and they, you know, work as a janitor. So they're biking to work at four in the morning and they get hit by a car, you know, all this terrible stuff that happens. Um, and these are the things that I'm trying to fix and it's hard. Um, because basically the separation of land uses and the paradigm that we have um, and the way that our built environment is sprawling outward it is creating a dungeon in mm-hmm. real life. I mean, it's this weird open air, yeah. um, dangerous, b- bad place that you have to navigate. Um, so when I do Dungeons and Dragons storytelling, I'm really interested in pushing built environment forms in these weird directions um, to respond to incentive structures that are maybe just as perverse as the one that we have in real life, just for example, you know, just using the parking thing as an example. Um, but maybe it's because you, we need to build the city on the back of a giant turtle because, you know, that's what we got. Yeah. Because we were running, we didn't have a lot of options and the turtle was, seemed okay with it. That's really, I mean, that's fascinating. And it, cause I was just thinking about the, the inherent parallel that creates these inherent parallels between like the, the idealized trope of what a D and D world looks like for people who aren't thinking, thinking through the inherent consequences and, and, and inherent racially charged and socially charged spaces that the D and D worlds were all used to thinking about we create these mirrors, you know, the idea, it, it makes it easy to internalize the idea. Oh yeah. All the orcs would live in this mountain. That's a little bit outside of the main city, which looks kind of a lot like projects. Like it's really yeah. <laughs> easy to think about like, you know, this, you know, this idyllic farmland that's around the place where you buy, where you go to buy all the new gear looks a lot like suburbs. Yep. I mean, like the, you know, the even this like the story of the archetypal hero who comes from this who comes from you know this small farm village and then goes into the main city and gets a gets a quest to go and do something it's, it's very it's capitalism like, it's, yeah. it's all it's all very reflective yeah um and so i mean but in in you know in the spirit of you know make create the world you want to you, you want to exist rather than you know create a space where the world you want to exist might echo it's cool to be able to do that in that uh in in the fantastical space rather than or just exploring a new and more interesting set of fucked up problems well there's that too yeah because at this rate we're not we're we're as much as i think we're headed in the wrong direction i even if we're we start headed heading back in in a in a more positive direction societally we're still gonna run into that shit have you ever thought about playing with mass transit? 
Like in game. In game. Well, I Bruno, well, we're, I, oh, we're, no, doing, we're already right. doing that. All right, fair enough. Fair I enough. know. I have. <laughs> so the main setting for the D and D game that we're doing right now is the city, which is called the Spire, and it's a mile tall um, tower that has a population of about a hundred thousand people. Uh, give or take it goes one mile above ground and one mile below ground and it does have mass transit because it's there's two ways to get around the spire since it's an entirely vertical and fairly narrow city it's only about a tenth of a mile in diameter um so it's a little bit snow piercer e mm-hmm. if it was not moving and i've also never watched snow piercer because i'm worried it would scare me too much because i'm very <laughs> fragile um but i've read about snow piercer it seems cool so anyway but i had this idea 10 years ago before snow piercer the movie um so it's good and it's not my fault uh so so there's two ways to get around there's a staircase which is public and it sort of spirals around the inner wall of the spire you know it goes up and down in a big spiral and yeah, that's where the poor people are, mm-hmm. uh, walking up and down those stairs all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the center, like the core, is a elevator shaft that has um, elevators that are run by a guild. And you have to pay them quite a bit of money to use the elevator to move quickly up and down. And that is what rich people tend to do. And the mega rich people do even weirder stuff. There's one uh, guy who's like extremely wealthy, one of the most powerful people in the Spire. And there's one point where he took a private hot air balloon from the outside sort of surface level all the way up to his penthouse, which is almost a mile up. And then just cut it loose. Yeah, and then he just let the balloon drift away because he's so rich he didn't care. <laughs> which was cool. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I thought. I mean, and the other thing the other thing worth noting is that it does not go down. The the spire is also a mile deep as yes. it, and the elevators don't go down. Well, the the shaft goes down. They don't often go all the way down. Wait, the shaft goes the shaft goes all the way down? It doesn't go all it goes like three quarters of a mile underground. And then mm. it's sort of it's not clear what's below that at this point. Yeah. Not clear to you. No. I don't think. It's clear to me. I mean, it might be clear to you. I have I have inklings. So much of so much of what makes the worlds that you create, playing both both like in the board game space where you're, you're playing inside of other people's boundaries a little bit more, yeah. and in, and and then inside of Spire and sort of the the ancillary stuff that you've built inside of that world. Um, so much of the power that you bring there is in the world building. And and building building a world that's complicated and has rules and has a lot of spaces, but that also we can invent stuff like some like we like we as players there are lots of rules and like there are things on the map but then like suddenly we just we make a thing happen like we for like we've we have on many occasions done shit that you weren't ready for oh and i love that that's the fun part about being a dm is that you never know what's going to happen yeah how much of the urban planning that you do is planning for like does that play in are you planning for stuff that you can't predict like do you have to oh absolutely yeah um yeah i think it's a good there's a lot of parallels because like when you're playing D D, you you are like okay here's what i want to have happen in this story here's where i want to get to but then you've involved these other people and it gets very messy and you almost never wind up in the place you expect to and that's true of the planning process as well uh, you want a certain outcome, like, you know, the purple line, for oh, example, God, yeah. which is, you know, a proposed light, right, light rail project in suburban Maryland. And then, you know, a bunch of fucking rich people, uh, 
cynically deploy environmental laws to block a mass transit project because they don't want the pores in their backyard. So, yeah, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what makes it fun or awful awful <laughs> i guess i gave i gave a not fun example there's more fun examples okay here's a fun example um my favorite thing that i get to do at work is to uh coordinate our bike share mm -hmm. so we are in this like really interesting position where we are outside of the capital bike share service area right like they don't capital bike share does not go to where we are in maryland um but there, so there's a lot of like pent up demand because mm -hmm. people know about it and they want it. And rather than wait for it, we just went ahead and got a bunch of money from the state from a grant and we hired a third party company called Zagster and we, they came in and set up a bike share for us and it's kind of a small one. Um, and the university owns it in partnership with the city of College Park, which is our host city. And this is a really cool thing I get to work on with the people from the city and the people from the bike share company and the people from the university. And what we did not anticipate and what has started to happen is other regional municipalities want to join the bike share network. And we did not expect that. Like all of a sudden Greenbelt wants in and Hyattsville and University Park has already joined. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we're like, whoa. And it leads to all of these like really confusing logistical stuff. Like, do we need to redesign the logo? Do we need to rethink our revenue split? You know, because people pay to join. Right. Uh, and we're figuring all that out right now. And that's super fun. Um, so that's something where we had this thing where we were like, yeah, we want to provide a robust like bike share as a transit last mile solution for people in the College Park and University of Maryland campus area. And then we did too good a job. <laughs> and now, well, that makes me sound like an ass. We, we're doing a pretty good job. Yeah. And, but, and people are very interested in being a part of it. And we just didn't expect that. Um, so that's like a fun thing that we're trying to figure out, which is uh, unforeseen. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, I guess that's, you just roll with the punches. Yeah. Not to, damn it. What? Nothing. I just hate the, I, I said punches and then I thought about a, and then I thought about a fighter pun and then I was like, no, shut up, Bruno. You roll with the critical hits. Uh, you roll the d20s. You roll. Yeah. Ew. What? Ew. <laughs> that okay. was gross. We're done. <laughs> okay. We're done. <laughs> That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Aaron at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. You can also check out Aaron on the podcast Spire, which is available on iTunes. Also, a formal shout out to Austin Walker and the folks over at Friends at the Table. If you have any interest in the really nerdy stuff Aaron and I talked about on this episode, check out Friends at the Table on iTunes. You can find out more about this show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. We're on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe to, rate, and review the show. I'd like to thank Humblefire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve. Available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. Humblefire just released their new album, Builder, also available on iTunes, Spotify, and humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for my conversation with Roxana Haddadi about movie reviews, the writer's room, diversity, and media literacy. Talk to you then.